Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hello, everybody. It is my pleasure to have you get to know some really wonderful and interesting people. Matt and Tawny Browning. They're my guests for today. They are the authors of the new book, The Hate Next Door, Undercover Within the New Face of White Supremacy. Matt is an internationally recognized authority on the inner workings of white supremacy groups as an undercover detective for more than two decades in Arizona. Browning has been infiltrating, documenting, and disrupting white supremacy movements from the inside, gaining an intimate vantage point to the KKK, border militias, Proud Boys, and other white power groups as they organized and grew their ranks, which included police force and military veterans. Together with his intrepid wife, Tawny, he adopted fake IDs and ideologies seeking the arrest of hate group participants. What others dismissed as fringe groups, Browning quickly recognized as large and interconnected organizations permeating every facet of American society, effectively spreading their dangerous and repugnant rhetoric at unprecedented speeds. Tawny Browning considers herself first and foremost a mother of five. That is quite a job. Beyond that, she was the supervising and casting producer for A&E's Escaping Polygamy, a series documenting the trials and struggles of individuals attempting to leave the cult life of polygamy. For years, Tawny has been assisting her husband in the investigations of numerous skinhead organizations with her covert investigative tactics— Tawny was instrumental in the shutting down of one of the world's largest and most violent skinhead organizations. Tawny continues to gather intelligence on various individuals and religious extremists throughout the world. The series Escaping Polygamy is airing now on A&E, and Matt and Tawny's new book, The Hate Next Door, is available on Amazon and at local bookstores. You can find out more about Matt and Tawny's work at mattandtawny.com. Here they are now. It is so nice to have Tawny and Matt with me today. It really is a treat to have people who are so dedicated to exploring, exposing, really helping people be educated about these cultures, subcultures, sometimes not as sub as we might think, and that if they're more prevalent and kind of hiding in plain sight, sometimes not hiding at all. One of the things that people will sometimes ask me is, you know, why I've been doing this work for 32 years. I mean, clearly I must care about it or find it interesting if I've been doing it for so long. And I realized I needed to kind of formulate an answer for that and kind of understand myself and what draws me to it. And I and I realized for me, it's the micro and the macro. So the micro being that I want to be able to help people. I want to be able to offer this kind of counseling and through my support group for people who have been in 
in groups that really played with their heads and they're trying to land, they're trying to figure out who they are. We're trying to come out of a group that took them over or a relationship that took them over. And then the, the macro for me is that it's a human rights issue, but also because I care about groupthink and I care about what can happen in the world when that goes unchecked and when it grows and when it becomes more virulent and dangerous and commonplace and that people get desensitized to the messages. So it is, you know, I've seen it in my own, you know, Holocaust survivor family history. So I, I'm going to care about it a lot uh, personally and professionally. So it, it, it all the more reason that I'm very happy to have you on the show. I'd love you to take a moment and introduce yourselves. Tani, you want to start? I'm Tani Browning. I am Matt's wife. Um, we've been together since we were teenagers. So we've been together for a minute and we have five kids together. I know this man pretty well. And one of the reasons, you know, that I was so drawn to him was because of his goodness. So I love what you said about helping people. And um, we we feel a lot the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Matt? I'm Matt Browning. I'm Tani's husband. <laughs> and uh, you, you know what? I think yeah, I, I've spent a lot of time working these extreme secretive societies. I've, you know, gone through my own personal journeys and traumas and and victimizations, and and that's what has pushed me into doing what Tani and I do. And we still continue to fight hate. We continue to fight extremism. We continue to fight um, victimization. And going off what you said, why do we do it? I'm I'm tired of kids being hurt. You know, I'm just tired in, the, in these closed secretive societies, whether you're talking a, a religious group, a, a polygamous cult, a white supremacist, a white nationalist, whatever it might be, kids are being hurt. And that's our future. And we got to stop it. And, and that's why we do what we do. It's really, really, really important. I know that, you know, with kids, they are put squarely in the crossfire. And I think about years ago when I was, I was flown to, to Texas, to Austin, to help work with the social workers there to train them to a certain degree. And they were helping with the the raid that had already happened on the FLDS compound. And there was a bit of a um, kind of a misunderstanding uh, going into it, I think, even though I think for some kids, a, a raid is traumatizing and others, it is a great relief to know there are people out there who care about what's happening to them and everywhere in between in terms of the reactions. But I heard the the social workers, in very well-meaning, really dedicated, but talking to people who had been taken off the compound about how they had rights and kids had rights and they could say no. And there were these blank stares uh, because they weren't familiar with the word. What does that mean to have a right? And if you um, say that you have rights, is that going against God? Because that's going against the leader who's telling you you don't. They had to find a way in, um, but kind of teach these people that they had the ability to be able to, to say no, to be bothered by something, that it's okay to be angry about what's happening to you. It's okay to have your feelings. They're so disconnected from the self. And then on top of it, really injured. And so there's this disorientation that happens for a lot of these people that's totally overwhelming. And so I think learning what's happened to them, getting protection is very grounding 
it's really helpful to then know how to have a safer life and how to protect yourself in it. I'm curious, Matt, you brought up about your own history. I don't know if you want to help us understand that part of you to that led into you being interested to whatever degree you want to talk about it. I was a police officer, did 20 years in law enforcement. And during that 20 years, I did 13 plus undercover work in white supremacist, skinhead crews and border militias. Uh, anything on the extremes, it seems like I got sucked into. I worked with, you know, Antoine LaVey in the Church of Satan. I worked all these different things. And what drew me into it, and and not to speak for Tani, but it seems like I kind of drew Tani into it because it, it was a transition. I needed, you know, support and help and understanding. And Tani's always given that to me. But I had a skinhead one day try to kill me. He stuck a gun in my chest. And and luckily, we fought over the gun. And, and he tried to pull the trigger. But the gun, you know, dislodged and we fought and he went to jail. You know, two weeks later, he shot another cop. So that's what drew me into the whole white supremacy movement. I never grew up knowing it was here, but my eyes were open. I was a victim turned survivor and I wanted to fight a fight against what just happened to me. And that's what a lot of these survivors do is once that happens, they don't want it to happen to anybody else again. And that's what springboarded me into my journey and kind of sucked Tani into the world of Willingly. Well, well, sometimes unwillingly, but yes. Tani, it's a give and take. I suck Tani into the world of hate, and she pulls me into the world of religious extremes. And and so it's a good good union because, quite honestly, extremism is extremism. You know, hate is hate, and they go together. And so it's, it's amazing what we found in our journey through hate. Yeah. You know, we started with the journey in hate and ended up in polygamy and all kinds of different um, religious extremes. But like Matt said, we found there's so many similarities. And one day I woke up and I said, I guess evil follows evil, but this is the human way once we turn away from what light and dark is kind of, I don't know how else to say it simply, but when you're looking towards something that's not light and uplifting and enlightening, we start to see the same similarities down that darker path. As a clinician, you would know that, you know, traumas affect people different ways. You know, you can, you can be traumatized by something. You can go, you know, drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, whatever it is to try to run away from it. You know, luckily for me in, in my walk through all that, I, Tani was here and we decided that we would not just run away from the, the people wanting to kill me or the, 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 the lamb. As you as you read the hate next door, all the different things go through it, and we talk about. And you just got to fight those. You got to fight the trauma. And what we did was we decided to turn the trauma into, you know, what we do, and that's a fight against hate. It is a valiant fight and a really important fight. And it's really good to understand the hate, as you're saying, to try to see the origins of it and and the links. You know, yes, in different environments. And I and Tani, I want to ask you more about that. What you saw the crossovers. But I, I think it's really interesting when I we had someone on the show, Chris Buckley, who who is with Parents for Peace, and he um, said the thing that actually helped him wake up was when mm, there was a person who was hired by his wife to come and come to the house, and he saw love in this person's eyes, looking at him with love. He had never seen that in another man before, looking at him with real care. And it just kind of softened him, like the hate started to melt away. But he had been met with so much abuse growing up 
and hatred, really hatred in people's eyes towards him, even from a young child, that that's what he knew to give back. And that's how he thought people related to each other. And he, he just didn't know that that was possible. Um, and it was that it could sort of affect his whole system, kind of calm down his whole nervous system when he saw the look in this person's eyes. It also affected him when he addressed his his son up in a plan outfit and then saw a video of his four-year-old wearing a hood. It suddenly was chilling to him. He was so caught up in the movement while he was there. But then when he's home with his loving wife and seeing his child dressed, he thought this is there's something really wrong with this picture. But it was interesting, the dichotomy that when he was there at the rally, he couldn't see what was wrong with it because he was so caught up in the fervor of it, which is also a problem here, right? Getting people caught up. So, Tani, what have you noticed? What's a, what's the some of the similar themes back and forth with extremism and this whole way of thinking? Yeah, I, I am going to answer that. But I love, I feel this, sometimes we talk about love because the opposite of hate is love. I mean, that is the answer. And I feel like people think it's too simplistic. So to share that story where no, it, knowing that he saw love, that someone might care about him, it is the answer. And, so it, and it is something that we can all do. What did that man do? But to say in his eyes, I care about you. I mean, we can all do that and change our world that simply. We really can. But to your to your question, it was crazy because we were helping one girl leave. Anyway, I don't want to give too much about it, but she had a an iron cross right here on her right here on her on her forearm. And I was like, Do you know what that means, baby girl? Do you know what that is? And she was, yeah, she knew. She was dating a to have a tattoo anyway was pretty rebellious, but she was dating a white nationalist. And I thought, oh, so we've jumped from one extreme to another. So that was my first little bit. But then as I got deeper into like for instance, the Kingston group, I found out that they were hearing from the pulpit from their prophet or what they call the leader, you know, Hitler had it right. He just didn't have the priesthood, which is basically he just didn't have God's blessing. So when you start hearing things like that, you're like, this is the same thing. And then, you know, you get into the Warren Jeffs tapes. And of course, he, you know, that's been well publicized, that very, very racist, you know, homophobic and anti-Black or anything of color. Right. And the whole, all, the conspiratorial groups too, that seem to devolve, like they, they follow this wave of having their ideas. And then it all kind of devolves into xenophobia and anti-Semitism and hate and it, with the same themes. And they all kind of join in that area, which is, which is scary. And you wonder what, what that's about too. And so, I mean, these stories of people just being met with someone's love in their eyes and that it it is so it's such a turning point right i agree with you tani it cannot be understated overstated it it is it it's incredibly powerful just for someone to feel that for the first time as an adult too you know to even realize that there are people in the world that don't even know what that is that that's all it took and it costs us nothing and yet we are so poor at delivering that kind of just that simplicity of love. Wow. Yeah. It costs us nothing, but we are so poor. And that's actually quite a powerful line and powerful thought. You're right. It's easy. And people don't get those opportunities. And we are so, we are so needing it. We're so polarized everywhere in our families, in our country, in our communities. And it's like, wait, this, I don't think this is what we want. We want love and connection. We're biologically designed, as you know, to connect. And, you know, sometimes it's just knowing someone cares at that level, that 
like I said, it costs us nothing. Right. And it's interesting also what you're saying about connection, because there are a lot of people who get involved in things. They might not even believe in the teachings or, or right, but they want the community. They need that, that connection with others and feeling like they have something in common, feeling like they have people who are watching their back, whether or not that's the case, but it feels that way. It's very interesting what we will tolerate, what we'll accept, what we'll agree with, just to have community. Well, so it's that whole gang mentality. You know, that's why people join gangs. They join gangs for the brotherhood, for the associations, for lack of family. And they, they get drawn into a gang. And next thing you know, they didn't do it to commit crimes. As it goes on, now they're committing crimes for the gang. And, you know, they get caught, they go to prison, and, and the, the whole spiral down from there. And white nationalism is no different. Like you said about the conspiracy groups, they'll put out one little tiny piece that piece somebody will latch on to. Somebody will say, I'm a nationalist. And all of a sudden, thousands of people latch on to he's a nationalist. That draws in so many more people. And, and that's the type of stuff that we talk about in The Hate Next Door is that we, we got to stop this stuff. We have to understand that, as you guys talked about, the way you look at somebody matters. The words we use matter. matter. The families we grow up in matter. How parents teach their kids matter. What we show on our TVs, our social networks, everything else, it all matters. It promotes. And if you're going to promote something, let's promote good kindness and love. Let's not promote hatred. I mean, we've seen that nothing positive comes from hate. Exactly right. Yeah, and words do matter. I was actually just reading something recently, and even though it's not hate speech, but it is labeling, um, there was uh, an article written by um, someone who is, a, she's a parent herself, but she's also a family therapist. And she was talking about how you want to be careful when you're introducing, let's say if you have kids, you're introducing your kids to other people. You don't want to say, and here's my beautiful daughter and here's my smart son, right? Because then you realize those are the values that you're placing on these kids. And that's now what they're going to be known for. And that's how you perceive them. And just introduce them by name, not with a label. Even if you think it's positive, still it's a label and it affects people. Yeah. Yeah. And we just, we discussed that in the book is that, um, People have said that every immigrant coming across the border or a lot of the immigrants coming across the border are rapists and murderers and gang members and these things. Well, when you when you put that out in in the far, far extreme of these hate groups, they take that out, then we have to stop everybody. And that's what's causing the violence. That's what's causing the the border, you know, the militias to go down to the border and to to do what they do. And you we just can't do that. You know, well, let's call for what it is. And not just say, you know, I don't know why people do it. They're trying to get a rise out of people or they're trying to motivate people to do damage. And it doesn't matter what side of these issues you're on. You just got to realize those words take the, take the people that are already believing it to the extreme and they do extreme, extreme things. Right, exactly. And I think that also that phrase to try to get a rise out of people, I think for some people, that might be the only power they feel they wield in this world, right? That they can get under your skin. They might not even care about what damage they're going to be triggering you to do, but they just love knowing that they got you to do it uh, or they got you to react. It's, I mean, it's a very hollow victory, I think, but still for some people, it's what they've got. I'm wondering then about infiltration because, you know, for a lot of people, 
um, that would make them way too nervous. It's a very brave thing to do. And uh, yeah, it takes a lot of courage. So I'd love to hear about how that was done. Um, there might be some things you might not be able to share, and that's okay too. But what can you share with us about that process, what it was like for you? Well, that actually, out of all of it, that was the easy part, you know, getting in. Because what what you do is is you, you set up the meetings and you you do it through phone call, do it through text message, do it through whatever. Mine was through phone calls. And, you know, the, the hard part is getting started to get the courage up just to make the stupid phone call. But then once that happens, then then the process is developing a backstory, developing who you are, creating your persona in, in these organizations that people are going to understand. And for me, and I'm not saying this is like it for every undercover out there because everybody's different. But for me, I go in with zero story and I just let the talking create its own story with these people. So I find out, OK, this group is totally anti-immigration. And so I key my backstory to anti-immigration. Okay, this group is anti-Jew. Okay, so I'm going to cater towards the the hatred of Jews. And, and that's that's how I did it. And that's I became successful in doing that. He makes it sound like I developed a backstory. I did this. I'm like, so what are you going to say? And all of a sudden he's saying all of this crazy stuff is coming out of his mouth. I'm listening to it. And he's just, he didn't develop anything. He just did it. I know this because he's like, I don't know. I, that's not how I do it. So he talks like that, but that's not at all how it worked. He has a gift of, you know, when when he's fighting for what's I be, what's right and what he feels is right, he has a gift of, you know, getting people behind him even when they don't know that it's going to cut their own throats. Mm, interesting. Right. So that means that you need to know how to read your audience how to read the room. Yeah, I, I'm a back row sitter. If I go to church, I'm in the back row. I'm sitting, I'm looking at everybody. When I go to these meetings with these skins and the haters, um, border groups, whoever, I'm in the back. I'm reading everybody around me and I'm keying on some specifics in different people. And that's how you make your move to go in. And it worked for me. And luckily, you know, in my in my journey through my undercover work, you know, we locked up 19 guys for murder, attempted murder in Arizona. We were very successful at it. And um, and he had a lot of help. I mean, we need to you know, there was a lot when he got the support from from the from the police department, the FBI, things like that. You know, it's amazing what people can do together. Huh. That's really powerful. And it's nice to know that you had that backup and that they cared about you know, helping you out in that way. Uh, I'm sure knowing that you were going to be doing the legwork was. Yeah, I was going to say you're stretching a little bit there. (laughs) But but I I mean, yeah, you get the support when you can get the support. Um, But you worked with some really great guys. I worked with great guys. I I was lucky. My supervisors from the very beginning were very supportive and and saw the need, saw saw what was going on. And and we could sit back and look and kind of project, okay, if we don't do this, and these are the things that are going to happen. And and so that was great. Towards the end, when when the support was kind of like going away, then I was lucky to have the support here at home of Tani. And then, you know, you know good for me, probably bad for her. I sucked her into going to these concerts and shows and, and talking to various skins and and gathering the information where we could, we could get it. Well, you say that. I mean, here here we're a married couple, obviously. But he says that. And it was like, more, it was like his little mind was off. You know, how do I fight this hate? And I'm like, let me in. Let, get, let me into your head. So he, and I'd say, well, if 
I can get this information, then can we go do something I want to do? So it just, it, you know, my grandmother took up fishing. I took up hate, I guess. I don't know. I just, it's not really that like that, but some of it was pretty, you know, I just wanted, I wanted his head with me, not, not, you know, outside of, out outside of this home sometimes. Absolutely. I mean, when you're dealing with this kind of subject matter, it can take you over. Yeah. There's no can, it will. It will. And, and it does. Mm-hmm. And there's studies have been done that, that hate chemically changes the chemicals in your brain. As you hear more and more and more of the hate, your brain actually physically changes to accept, to bring in and to promote the things that you're hearing. And it changes your your whole personality. Luckily for me, I had Tani that when I go, after I go to a meeting, a barbecue, a, a, a get together, whatever it was, you know, I come home and Tani would just say, all right, you know what? This is, you're not in a world of hate. You're at home. Your kids love you. I love you. Here, you even have dogs that love you. You know, there's, there's the things that Tani would do to get that hate out. And it's just, it's just, a, it's just a, a weird thing, you know, hate is. It's interesting too, yeah, Tani, that you needed to help with detox uh, when he would come back home. Like it really is a toxin. It really takes you over. It's interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I was just, a little, I was just little, you know, we're just working this out together. I just knew that I needed my husband, you know, the good man that I married here for us and the kids. So, right. Right. Wow. It's very, it's, it's amazing that, you know, for you, Matt, that you had this nice counterbalance, actually a necessity. So then how long did you spend doing this work? Oh, we still do it. And now that, now that the book's been released, The Hate Next Door, now that Secrets of Polygamy is out, you know, with the A&E. So I'm all over that with doing doing what we did for escaping polygamy the A&E show you know we're out for that it's, it makes it harder to go undercover when when you're on TV shows and doing interviews but we do what we can do there's other ways to do it and we continue to track and monitor undercover going to meetings like i said 13 plus years on the police department we've done stuff after my retirement for different agencies um, and we continue to fight hate wherever we can fight hate. And to help law enforcement where we can. Just two mo- two months before the book came out, so I guess that was May, uh, just in 2023, I heard him talking to a podcaster who was like mother effing Matt Browning, but not knowing that he was talking to Matt Browning. I'm just like, this is such a mind, crazy mind place that we live where he's like talking just crap about Matt Browning, not knowing he was talking literally to Matt Browning. Wow. That's trippy. So how did you handle that? What'd you do? Oh, I, yeah, you're right, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you promote the same garbage they're spewing and it's like, yeah, yeah, he's a jerk. Yeah. You know, but the problem, the, yeah, I know you said it's guys like that, then, you know, that just make this, just this world. I mean, he would just totally, and he knew that he was just messing was, with this guy, but I was feeding into it and I was giving him fuel for his fire to go off on because I was, I, I, I'd have to mute my phone and laugh and then unmute it. And, but the thing about the whole thing is that, you know, I wish I would have stopped it because you got to stop the hate where it begins. You have to stop the fire before it gets into a forest fire. You got to stop it. And for, for me in that situation, I was trying to gather intelligence that I could pass on to local law enforcement for a huge international rally that they were planning. And so that was my purpose in doing what I was doing. 
now, I mean, there's, there's, we, we, we shut down and Tani was very instrumental. I mean, she pretty much did. We shut down the world's largest hate group, most violent guys out there. And we stopped that with a phone call, just called and said, yeah, Hey, well, after we had so much information. Yeah, after we had so much information where it's going on and, and we called called the dude in his house and said, I'm gonna have every cop in the state at your house if you don't, you know. So you you can you can have this rally all you want and everybody, nobody's gonna get there because everybody's gonna get stopped. And then they just in in fought and it just imploded yeah. from there. So then they just shut down. They didn't just shut down the rally, they shut down the organization and on an international scale, they shut it down. And so it, it's just things like that. You just got to, you fight where you can fight. It's interesting that, I mean, that sounds incredibly powerful and instrumental. And uh, I think exponentially sort of how many people you saved in that moment. Um, so good on both of you in, in that situation. I wonder also when you're talking about the infighting that they turn on each other, because, you know, if you have people who are so worked up into a froth, that it's like they're spring-loaded like a toy car, right? And so then, yeah, they do often turn on each other and they, and then one person becomes the enemy of the other person or can't be trusted. And, you know, because I think they haven't really learned how to be in the world in a in a healthy way, just in general with people. And so it you kind of hope that that happens, that they, you know, burn up the organization just by turning on each other. And, you know, I, I wish it were to happen more often. But I'm so glad to hear that about this experience. Yeah, I think we got lucky in that, that, that experience because the leader was actually, a he was a good leader. And when he said he was done, everybody else followed behind him. The problem with the infighting is that it usually causes a split. And so now you get two groups that are started or it causes a homicide or or things like that. We we worked a case where they actually the leader was trying to do something smart and his friends didn't like it and he got stabbed 15 times by his own crew and killed him. See, but you're dealing with non-emotional regulated people. When you deal with hate, you got to understand that you're these aren't rational thinking people. They they they're at this blink of an eye, they'll pop you in the yeah. mouth or punch you in the face. At the blink of an eye, they'll stab you or kick you in the head. And that's the way that they are. That's what hate does. Hate is nothing but an accelerant for the 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 fire that they're feeling. Right. It's like the phrase, I just remember from a group I used to listen to where in their song, they say anger is an energy. And it is. It just does get people really fired up. I wonder also about hate in general. Because I I will sometimes go back to this phrase that it doesn't answer the whole question, but it answers part of it, that for some people, scary people are scared people, that they're coming out on the offense so they're not on the defense because they're afraid of being on the defense. So they come out fighting because the world is a scary place to them. And so that I think that's true for some people and some other people just, yeah, as you're saying, they haven't learned how to regulate or they're sociopathic and this gives them a place to just be that way. Um, what do you think it is for people? What is the motivator for some people? And I know there's more than one way of looking at this, but what maybe are some of the motivators for people to get involved in things like this? I mean, that's a great question because if if we can, the three of us can sit down and discuss this and come up with a solution, we've just saved the world. Yeah. Let's do it, by the way. Let's let's give it a shot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think for the people who go on a national and international scale, 
hate is a moneymaker because it's the more clicks you get, the more clicks you get, the more subscribers you get, the more money you get for your stupid little YouTube videos or your TikToks or or whatever it is. So it's a moneymaker on that side. For the people that they're actually preaching to and trying to, to sell their whatever it is they're talking about, their hatred, I think they're getting involved because something happened to them at some time. Maybe back in grade school, they got jumped by a Hispanic gang, or maybe maybe their their dad or uncle was watching the news and started yelling at the TV because of something going on. Maybe they lived down by the border and all the ranchers were upset because the immigrants were coming across. There's something has to spark the fuel to start that fire of rage and that hatred. And, and it's all, I mean, now, shoot. Just turn on the TV, turn on social media, and you can just pick whatever you want. But it could be music. I mean, music, one of the biggest biggest motivators we have. If you want to see pure adrenaline, go to a hate show. There are so many many boots and fists flying, and then they get up and hug each other and go on to the next show. And so it's just, there's so much going on. But I think what we need to do is start with what we say. Start with what motivates them to start with. Because we came up with a little mathematical equation for hate, and I am not a mathematician. So when you have the ideology, and then you you add the rhetoric from our politicians, from our politicians, from, home, from but- homes, from preachers, from teachers, from whoever it is, they go out and they have the rhetoric of the ideology, and then you multiply that with just a little bit of religion, you have a recipe of violence. And you put those together, you will have violence. That's why we have Christian identity. That's why we have the Aryan nation started. That's why all these different groups were there, because you took ideology with rhetoric, multiplied it times religion, and you have violence. Wow. That is fascinating. What an equation. Okay. So ideology plus rhetoric plus religion. Times. 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 Times Times religion. Religion, Religion is the largest motivator in hate there is that I have found. Religion motivates you more than the music. Religion motivates you more than the money. The religion motivates you more than your relationships because with the religion, you are promised eternal salvation. You are promised to sit on the right hand of God or Valhalla or go to Valhalla or stand with Odin. And that's what religion does. And Tani can tell you firsthand by talking to these polygamists and these cult leaders that are are running these groups, that they preach fear through religion. Right. Oh, it's so interesting. And I want to ask you more about that, Tani. I think, yeah, there was um, some quote, I don't know where it originated, but they were saying that, you know, there's more killing in the name of God than for any other cause, so to speak. You know, I know also from just my Jewish history, I mean, you know, all all these times in history, the Inquisition, everywhere, everywhere along along the way. Uh, so many of our holidays are, they tried to kill us. It didn't fully work. Let's eat something. Like that's sort of how it is, right? <laughs> mm, it's a little like, okay, let's try to make this happy, but it's really not. It's really troublesome, but still, you know, let's have a latkes. So it's, because uh, why not? Um, but I I think that, you know, it, it's interesting. So Tani, I want to be able to hear from your perspective too on this, because you've, you know, you both have this really nice wisdom and also it goes really nicely together. So go for it, picking up on this subject. We wrote an op-ed for the USA Today that was um, published in um, 
December, kind of about some of the stuff, some of, of what's going on in our world. And I'm just really sorry. I just feel, I mean, my heart hurts. I don't understand it. Even when we don't have a huge Jewish community in the Phoenix area, it motivated so many things in these hate groups. I don't understand it. It is one of the reasons that I wanted to help Matt. I'm like, why? I just don't even get this. So it was made me so curious and I still don't have an answer and it just upsets me so much. I just don't get it. But that's but. the religion. That's the religion. What went on on, you know, 9-11 was religious-based. What goes on in nearly every terrorist attack is religious-based. If you read the manifestos of the majority of the mass shooters, it's all religious-based. And that is why religion is so key and crucial here is that, and, and this is a kind of a spoiler alert, but I don't want to spoil the secrets of polygamy. You got to watch it because we we dive into a huge polygamous organization in Utah that is putting fear of eternal salvation into people for so they can line their pockets with the money that is given to them. And, and they're 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 doing this they're promoting crimes and and doing frauds and abuse and all these different things all in the name of god and it's okay and to, it's okay it's okay to hate your neighbor it's okay to steal from the government it's okay to do all these things that you would think a religion would teach oppositely because oh we're doing this for god and i've re i've read the bible i i'm still trying to find in the bible where it says it is okay to molest children it is okay to, you know, have 65 wives and, and over a thousand children that you don't even know their names and then and then steal from the government. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't find that. Maybe it's in the Old Testament somewhere. I don't know, but I just can't find it. But that's what they're preaching. And that's what they're they're preaching through fear. And that's what hate does. It doesn't matter if it's it's religious-based hate is nothing but fear-based hate. Well, and I, one girl we helped leave, she was she was filming with us before she left. And um, she was doing just a little interview with us. And there was a small little tiny earthquake in Southern um, Utah. And she was so scared and started to sob. And I said, what? She said, the destructions are coming because of me. And I said, no, it's just a tiny little earthquake. And, you know, we didn't end up filming that day, but, and that's fine. But she thought it was because of her that she had brought the destructions. The fear was so great for this 19-year-old girl. There was actually an earthquake here in L.A. one time when I was running a support group. And at least six of the people thought it was because of something they had said and that they were causing destruction. They were harming me. They were afraid then for my safety. If they kept talking to me, they must have sinned. Some of them thought I had sinned. And I, I remember one time hearing, not that I went to synagogue nearly as much as my parents would have liked, but still, um, I remember my rabbi saying, nature doesn't have a conscience. Nature isn't rewarding you, isn't punishing you. Nature exists alongside you. And so you want to protect yourself if you can, and you want to be able to make sure that you construct a home. If you're in an earthquake-prone area, construct it to protect yourself, but it's not because of something you did or didn't do, and it's not because of how you're seen in this world. And it, that really flies in the face of, you know, so many people who say, what did I do? What did I do to cause this? Or what did my neighbor do to cause this? And uh, even with illnesses, people get illnesses and somehow it's a punishment. It is debilitating. And it's interesting that you saw that. Incredible. So, okay. So now 
I mean, back to this whole idea also going into talking about polygamous structures. It's exactly right. There's a lot that's made okay that really isn't okay. And when people will sometimes ask me the definition of a cult, I'll talk about that there's there needs to be deception that makes something a cult, but also that it has its own system of values and laws and rules that don't match the society outside. Um, uh, what's wrong outside isn't wrong there necessarily if the leader doesn't want it to be wrong, if the leader wants to be able to do it. And so people sometimes when they leave, they have to learn. They have to learn morals. They have to learn values. They have to learn about laws and what is okay in society. Um, but especially, it, it usually what is okay is what the leader wants to be able to get away with. Well, that's all it is. And we saw that with Warren Jeffs. I mean, he started telling the people, you know, that we will be, that he started to prime them. I will be marrying younger girls and the world will not understand it. But, you know, he started priming the people. And I I talked to one of Warren's wives and I said, what did you think, you know, about bringing in these little girls that are 12? And she said, well, you know, it disgusted me, but he started at 14 and then 13. And then once they hit 12, she said that was really hard. But you have to understand for decades, you know, as long as my entire life, the prophets and the people had been marrying 16 year olds. So that didn't seem, you know, it was horrible. I mean, at least she could start to see that, but she'd been conditioned, not even brainwashed, but conditioned since she was a child that that was normal. Right. So she was desensitized. But something inside her heart said, okay, this is a little jacked up or way jacked up when it became younger and younger and younger. But still, a 16-year-old was absolutely normal. For a 50-year-old man to marry a 16-year-old was completely normal. And, and it really, it really, here's a really important thing to remember when you're dealing with like these polygamous groups is these, these women and men and, and children, they're born into it. They don't know anything else. So if they see their prophet marrying a 12-year-old, hey, it's okay. It's okay because he's a prophet and it's okay for him. He can him. do no wrong. He can do no wrong. And so then when they get older, they'll bring in a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old, underage girl, and they don't see the consequences like we would and look outside and say, that's illegal. That's a class four felony you're doing right there. And as a police officer, it's like, what in the world? And I wanted, I wanted, I mean, and Tani has really helped me here. I used to believe that everybody needs to go to jail. Everybody. And Tony goes, whoa, 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 whoa. We want to stop the behaviors. And so that's why when towards the end of doing all this, the, or not the end, but doing some of the skinhead stuff, you know what Tony told me? It's not about putting the people in jail. It's about disrupting the organization so they quit hating and so they break up. And I think that's what we're trying to do with polygamy and with these cults and with with anything else that revolves around this this hate Secret. sphere, this yeah. secretive society sphere, is break it up and let people experience. Like, Tani can tell you story after story about these girls that once they get that little piece of country music, you got them. They're, they're on their way out. Once Tani can tell you, I can read a tattoo and tell you what the guy's about. Tani can look at a, a little polygamous girl's hair and tell you how far away she is from leaving the group. Yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, she's struggling. And just even where their darts are on their dresses, if they're if they're not just wearing a big old bag, you can tell, oh, she's 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 struggling. She's being rebellious just with those little seams in her dresses. Oh, that's so fascinating. I want to hear more about that. It's reminding me when I was doing a um 
was doing this webinar, one of the series, one of the series of three that I did in the middle one, I wore a pink shirt. I don't often wear pink, but I wore a pink shirt in honor of uh, this woman who had been on the FLDS compound and uh, the man that she was married to, along with 12 other people, hated the color pink. And so when she, for whatever, so they weren't allowed to wear pink. Uh, he had some association with it. And so she, um, when she went out to get uh, thread and stuff to do needle pointing and other things to make some uh, shawls and things, she bought, she found actually a little tiny piece of pink string on the ground and she kind of tucked it a, into a place where he wouldn't see it. And so just having that it was minuscule, but she felt like this is me. I am making a statement. No one knows it, but I'm feeling empowered. I'm feeling brave. She was really nervous actually that somehow she would know or God would know. And so she just kept wearing it, wearing it. So I, I so I told people I'm wearing a pink shirt in honor of this person. I love that. And it, it, and it, it, then it takes back their control a little bit. I had a girl who loved my toenails, just really loved my pedicures. And I said, one day we'll go get one. But for now, here's some clear fingernail polish. You can paint your toes anytime that you want and put in, and she couldn't ever show her feet. So, but she knew that she had, you know, a clear coat of toenail polish on her toenails. Incredible. And so you have that insight to know someone else might say, so what's the big deal? Like, okay, fine. But it is monumental. Monumental. Yeah. And so what else did you notice? It's interesting that you bring that up, Matt. So so for Tani, what would you notice about the hair and the darts, all of that? The whole community has changed now. But when I was first in the community, if the, the hair was to Jesus, you know, and if the hair was a little bit and it was up, they couldn't leave it hanging. We can't leave it hanging is how they'd say it. So if it was just even little wispies that were coming out, they would call them boy catchers. And so if they had any boy catchers coming out, I just, I knew, or if they were eating potato chips or anything like just little quiet little nuances, I I could I could see into their little brains and say, oh, you you know you you need a little bit of this independence. You're being rebellious, and I loved it. Those are my favorite. You know, you do you, and you know you wear your boy catchers and eat those potato chips, and um, those are my favorite because they're still they still have an expression of self, and there's still that light in their little tummies, and they're they're whether they're I say little tummies, whether they, you know they're 18 or 45, it doesn't matter. It's you can see that expression, and it makes me so happy. I'm sure it does. And it says so much about us as human beings, how we we are so in need of symbols of freedom and individuality, which is not, you know, acceptable in those spaces and having a sense of kind of knowing who you are and making a statement, even in a very quiet way. It's really incredible. Human nature is really incredible. And sorry to interrupt you, but everything no, no, that please. we're talking about there on that side is the same thing that's happening on the extremist side. It's like, you know, oh, you know, they 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 just they have a t-shirt that has a little 14 or a little 88. They put a little tiny sticker on their car. They might get, you know, a tattoo where nobody sees it, but they know it's there. You know, these all the symbols that make a person become what they want to become. Luckily, Ta- I mean, Tani still to this day talks to these girls and we we love them. They're they're great and and hilarious. You want a good time, hang out with some of these girls. But on on the hate-filled side, 
you know, we still have to be aware of what's going on because that's what Tani would catch them with the boy catchers and know what's going on. We as parents need to look at our kids' social medias. We need to look at what, what are they listening to? What is going on? Why are you being a jerk all of a sudden? Or why is the school calling me? There's all the things that we need to do as parents, community, teachers, religious leaders, politicians, that we can help stop this flow of hate. Just like Tani is helping these girls understand, you're more than just a baby maker for some guy that has 14 other wives. That is not your, that's not your role in life. And you know that. To watch the change in their lives is amazing. And I think what we need to do now is is use the same things for the the haters. Mm, It's so interesting. And I also think going back to the language that's used, just the idea of wispy hair being called boy catchers. So many of these girls, you know, being raised to be made to feel like they can't be trusted, that they're doing something to entice the boys, right? I mean, just the terminology is so interesting and, and I think also debilitating and but it's the boys also. We got to remember that there's boys in these groups that that are told that if you take a shower, you don't clean yourself because you're playing with yourself. You don't. They sewed up their pockets in their pants because you can't put your pockets in the, your your hands in your pockets, and, and and so not to the same extreme as the girls, but these young men. I mean, what they're being taught is is we're creating. You know, I. Really, I hate to say it like this, but we're creating sexually repressed pedophiles that are going to hurt people just like Warren Jeffs did. Right. I, I've talked to I'm really glad you bring that up. I've I've talked to some people who were the like the the lost boys, the discarded ones, right? Who who really had to figure out how to retrain their minds, how to see girls and women as equals, uh, as having rights. Um, that no does mean no and 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 to hear their words and to know that their emotions are valid. I mean, all of these things were just new concepts. And so they were going into the world being these kinds of people that then would be judged, but they didn't know any different. I'm wondering for you, Matt, what you're noticing now in terms of the, this community of hate and extremism. I, I think people really need to know about the trends and how big of a problem it is. I mean, I hear about new groups almost every day and the internet I know makes, you know, access worldwide so, so huge and you can immediately reach everyone in the world, which is pretty scary. So tell us where you feel like this is going and what we should be watching out for. Well, I think the the world of hate is like a roller coaster. You have your peaks or your highs, which which would be like your January 6th, your Charlottesvilles, your your mass shootings. Um, and then all of a sudden it disappears and everybody thinks, oh, you know, we don't have any more groups. We're doing so good. No, they're just rebuilding, getting new leadership. And then they're going to come back up. I, I, we're not in the boots and braces anymore to where they're wearing their Doc Martin boots and their suspenders down. Those those days are going to come back, but we're in the khakis and camos phase where they, they're going to college they're trying to spew their hatred towards anybody that will listen. They're trying to make money like your Richard Spencer's or your Nick Fuentes's. They're they're trying to build up their, their listener base so they can make money. But I think what we really need to look at are these, these kids that are in high school that are being influenced mm-hmm. by all these people. 
And we need to take these kids in high school and give them a football, give them a baseball, give them something to occupy their time rather than going down the the deep holes on the internet. Social media is the worst when it comes to hate. You can get whatever you want on social media. You can learn how to build a bomb. It used to be you'd have to go to a gun show behind a park behind a specific truck in the parking lot and buy how to kill volumes one through five. Now you just get it all online and you can make your own bombs and suppressors. So it's 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 in all of our best interest to make sure that we're looking out for this and that we're giving every when that vacuum or when that void is in a child's life that we give them something to fill that void so they don't look towards hate so we can start it before we ever get there and i mean we have all kinds of examples in our we have five kids and all kinds of examples of how people have helped us raise our kids and so it, it's, I just don't think that the influence of a coach and a teacher, a therapist can be overstated in fighting hate. I think communities need to get back involved. We're not, we're not, we're, we can't attack this on a global level. We have to do it community by community. And Tanya, like Tanya likes to say, you know, we can fight hate one football team at a time. And we give kids a sense of purpose and understanding. And then they, they can take that through their lives and go back, remember, you know what? I won a state championship with all these different nationalities on my team. We work together. We're brothers. We're still their friends. Why am I hating this black guy next door to me? You know, and that's the type of stuff that we're setting at such a young level. And and I, I think that's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So this idea of purpose, it's interesting because a lot of people have said, too, that they suddenly felt like their life had meaning. And the meaning could be that we're going to try to, you know, erase a certain kind of culture or protect the world from this. I mean, that, you know, the, the purpose was really hate-filled, but still you could see the draw. You know, I wonder also just about the idea of intervening. You know, you're talking about what people need to get in a preventative way, right? So they're not searching in these ways for to get their needs met and to get the very human need of connection and purpose and power or feeling of control or whatever it is. What do you see is a good way to intervene once someone is involved? Because I know sometimes like if I ever do an intervention, it needs to be tailor-made to the person. The timing needs to be Right. So I know, I do know that it's not like one size fits all, but just from both of your perspectives, if you were to try to reach out to people, what messages do they need to hear? What do you think? One reason that we wrote The Hate Next Door is because I didn't want families to ever feel alone, that that was hopeless, that, that they were alone, that they were the only ones going through this. So in the back of the book, we do have a list of suggestions of what to do if you have a family member or a loved one in some of these groups. And some of it's, you know, one of the simplest things that we that we talk about is do not try to talk them out of these beliefs. Do not try to fight or to reason with them because that's just not, just love them where they're at. Let them talk about it. And then just little, little things like, well, you know, just a one little thought, well, have you ever thought about this? And, you know, mm. you know, well, if, that, if you're so into Jesus, do you think that Jesus wants you to kill people? Yeah, I just am confused. Yeah. Can you help me understand that? You know, and th- just opening up their minds just a little bit at a time. See, but you just did it right there. When Tani said that, you went, hmm. And it's just <laughs> that little sound makes a person think, well, wait a minute. Was that good? Was that, did, did, did it, was what I'm saying a bunch of garbage? You know, there's all these different things. And Tani's right. You got to. Don't jump down the rabbit hole with them. 
you know, you pull them out of that rabbit hole. I think for me, and I learned this, I had a death threat put on me and I just left my office and I went out and I found the person who put the hit on me. And I said, here I am. What are we going to, what are we going to do? You got to talk to him. You got to confront it. You have to, if you run away from it, it's just going to make it worse. You have to, you have to make that phone call. You have to answer the phone. You have to, you have to be willing. And we talked about earlier, you can't fear it, you know, because hate thrives on fear and, and, and you get, you have to confront the fear. And then once that void, once you, because there is so much hope that we, we've seen people come out all the time, but once they're out, you've got to give them, that was their identity. So you've got to, you've got to replace it with something else. We had Matt, there was a guy that Matt worked with that he got made sure he had a camera and he, he replaced it with photography. And he, he actually was, um, he was filming, um, tattoos and things, things from his old life, but that was his transition out. You've got to give him something to fill that void as well, because, and remember that that was their identity. That's who they thought they were. So interesting. Right. That's who they thought they were. I love that line. That's very powerful. And there's also something about seeing someone face to face that is, I mean, it takes a lot of bravery to do what you did. Like, oh, you want to kill me? Hey, (laughs) standing right here. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if a lot of people would do that, but the fact that that worked, it says so much. It says so much also about what happens now with social media, with the distance, that people say really heinous things and get very threatening. And and they say it, having that kind of feeling of safety, that they don't have to face the person. And suddenly when they do, it does change a lot of things. There are a lot of people who hate a lot of others, and they other a lot of other people who they've never met, right? They've never had someone who is from whatever culture or background or religion uh, that they are hating. And when they meet them, sometimes it changes everything. Yeah, because the people are afraid to to see what somebody's about. Our first time in Colorado City, I was scared to death of 16 and 17-year-old girls wearing dresses. I was scared to go and talk to these people. And, and 18, not, yeah, 18, baby, 18. But, but now you look back on it, it's like you were scared because it was the unknown. You were scared because of what you heard on the news about this community. You were scared because how is this going to affect you? We have to conquer these stupid little fears as hard as it is. And do what we know is right. And do what's right. Right. And so then it's reminding me too, there was this video that made its way around the internet. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. It was these, I know I don't mean to liken people to dogs, but it was these two dogs on either side of a, a glass door or a sliding door. And they were ferocious, baring their teeth and growling and trying to get at each other. But there was this glass partition, which they knew. And um, it got opened. Someone was walking through and it got opened. And suddenly the dogs were like, oh, we're good. It's fine. I'm good. You know? <laughs> like, because they could access each other suddenly. Like, oh, no. Right, right. Uh, and then as soon as the door got shut again, rawr, they're at each other, like with so much bravery, because they really were not in danger. They knew they were protected and then they could unleash so much. It was really interesting. Yeah. And then the, what we have to worry about now is that, that, that go back to your dog scenario, that one dog on one side, who's not getting fed, who's not getting attention, who's not getting anything. And as soon as that glass partition opens, he attacks. And that's why we have mass shootings. That's that's because they're not being nurtured. They're not being taken care of. They're not having somebody reach out to them. And then when that partition opens is when they're going to explode and jump. Oh, that's so interesting. 
Wow. Okay. So then now also with so much that's happening in our government with also, you know, a kind of merging with religion in a way that, you know, always makes me nervous. Um, it just feels like there's going to be so much more need for your education here and that equation that you put together because we're just going to keep seeing it. And people who are, I think, feeling entitled or feeling protected by God because they think this message came from God. And so I wonder for both of you, you know, I know that you want to be able to be positive thinkers about where where this is going and you want to be part of the change by doing education and prevention. What do you think needs to come into even schools? I mean, I would love for your book to be given out in, in high schools and colleges, even middle schools. Yeah, it's my, it's really, that is my dream. I mean, that if every coach and teacher and therapist could get a hold of this and just, it is not going to solve things, but it's going to start the conversations of great minds. And if we can leave our agendas at the door and use our great minds, I think we can solve so much of this. I definitely think we can come back together as a country and a nation and as communities and families. Incredible. So just as we're we're winding up, were there other messages, points that you wanted to make? Anything else for us today? You know, love each other. It's a really it's a it's a hard world world out there and, and everyone's struggling somewhere and we can love each other. That's something that we can do to fight hate. Every one of us. Again, it's free. We're very in need of it and we're poor at giving it. We are, and we're conditional at giving it, which is such a waste, I think, right? Because it's about loving someone how they are, not if they change or, you know, this is my way of showing you love. And it's actually not. It's just control or whatever else. Um, But I love that message. Love each other. And how about for you, Matt? What's a good takeaway for us? You know, you try to, you try to think of that, that, that what is the most eloquent thing I can say? I'm, I was a freaking undercover cop. There's nothing eloquent I can say except for the truth. And that is be kind. That's it. Be kind. If everybody, if everybody wore a shirt that said "Be kind" for for a month, everybody had a shirt that said "Be kind," and we did it, and we actually did it. What difference would that make? It changes your brain. It changes your thinking. It changes your oh shoot, you're right. I need to be kind, and that's that's all it is. That's you want to get rid of hate. Hate's been here since the world began. You got to be kind. I love it. I love it. Going back to this idea of schools, because of my background is in education. I, I think about uh, that I've used algebra zero times. Uh, but uh, <laughs> if, if instead the teacher spent time saying, hold the door open for somebody else, that it would be a very different place, very different world. So yes, I think weaving that in is important. Oh, it's such a good way to end today. And thank you. And I hope we can talk again. For sure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. One more thing before you go. Oh, my goodness. Thank you to Matt and to Tani for the work that they're doing the work they're continuing to do, the risks they're taking, the bravery they're showing, and how much they are really devoted to making a difference and putting themselves sometimes squarely in the middle of 
a very intense situation. When you find out about this idea of power, this sort of dark art, where I see it as the power to drive hate, the power to magnify intolerance, the power to divide and conquer, then you have this idea of people who are loving being able to spread poison. And what kind of person needs to do that? What kind of person needs to fuel rage and fuel any kind of hate of the other? There have been a couple of times on the podcast that I've talked about a hollow form of power. And power, for some people, is knocking people down. But I see that as hollow because you then, as the person who's knocked people down, are not not raising yourself up by actually accomplishing anything in the world. You're raising yourself up by standing on the backs of the people you knock down. That's not being powerful. That's just being a bully. That's just doing the thing that's easy to do, to overcome someone physically, emotionally, spiritually, and make them feel less than, make them feel scared of you. That's just the person who, from a young age, would have thrown sand in someone else's eyes on the playground and has sort of never learned not to because it still feels just as satisfying. And there are people also who know that they don't have real life skills. They would not accomplish a lot if they didn't use this skill of intimidation and overpowering others. And in fact, the power that is even more powerful than overcoming someone and othering someone is the power of self-control, not taking control over others. Self-control takes a lot more strength. Self-control is a lot harder. And so when you have people storming the Capitol, when you have people burning a cross, when you have people writing swastikas, on synagogues. They're not exhibiting any kind of power. They're not showing any modicum of self-control. They're just unleashing. And a child does that. An animal might do that, although I've often thought that with some groups of people, animals sometimes are more sophisticated than them and do show a bit more self-control. But one of the things that I have noticed when I'm asked about sort of the nature of a manipulative partner, a narcissistic partner, um, someone who is the head of a cult group, when they say, what is it? What is it that is the draw for these people to take over other people? For some people, It is 
that they care a lot about their own ideology. They care a lot about the spiritual lessons they're teaching, and they have to make sure that you agree with them and that you're going to follow them. And for other people, it's the fact that they can get money out of you. They can siphon off money from you or use you as free labor so they save money in other ways. But I think more often than not, it is just the power of knowing that if they say jump, you'll say how high. And that they have the power to make you make sacrifices that you would never have made otherwise, like saying goodbye to family and friends, dropping out of school, quitting your job so that you can devote your time to this organization or that leader or that partner. And in this situation, as Matt and Tani talked about, power is based on a certain kind of currency that I think, again, is really very sick, which is that people derive a sense of control and power and they get high off of this idea that they've been able to get a rise out of people. And for some people, that's it. They just need to know they were able to whip people into a froth, that they were able to take a group of people and turn them into a torch and pitchfork-carrying mob. And people love that. When people have a conscience, though, I think they don't love that. And I'll give you one example. There's a man who came to me a few years ago, and he said to me, I'm not sure what to do. I'm really charismatic. And I don't like it. I didn't think I'd ever hear a phrase like that. And I said, what do you mean? He said, for some reason, the way I speak, people listen, which is true. He had a certain way of talking that felt almost purposely trained, where he drew you in and you listened for his next word. Don't know what it was about. He just did it naturally. He had a kind of a commanding voice, a certain cadence. But he said that there have been times that he'll notice that when he starts talking, if he comes into a room or a business meeting, and he'll start talking, even whispering to the person next to him, everyone is silent and hoping to hear what he has to say. And because he has a conscience, that part of him scares him. And so he's actually been afraid of saying things, even in a joking way, because he thinks people will take him seriously. Or if he tells people to do something and he's just kidding, that they might do it. And then he would feel ultimately responsible for that. And he was afraid. He was afraid to speak up anywhere. He was afraid to hang out with friends. He tried to change his voice for a while, but then that didn't feel quite natural to him. And so we had to talk about what to do. And after a while, he realized he couldn't really fight it and to maybe use it, but use it for good and use it to teach 
about the fact that there's some people who are compelling in their messaging and their style who are going to use that against people, who are going to use that for their own gain, their own power. And if he could figure out what it was that he was doing that was causing people to lean in and listen, he could teach people what to watch out for and that someone might be really using that to guide them to do something dangerous or to guide them to do something that was antisocial, like in these situations. There are people out there who love being able to get a rise out of people. And that's their power. That's their skill. But it's really nothing to write home about. Because you can do it even by accident like this guy. This guy now runs a charitable organization and is actually raising a lot of funds to build prototypes for people who are disabled so that they might be able to walk upright. It's actually a beautiful thing. So he used it for good. What if more people were able to do that? What if more people could drop the hate, could drop the need to get a rise out of people in a bad way and use it for good? Imagine that. Thank you to Matt and to Tani for your work, for using your power for good. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.